Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Twitter at Creativity Play and at Facebook as well. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is John Seeley Brown, co-author of The Power of Pull and The Social Life of Information. John is a visiting scholar at the University of Southern California and the independent co-chairman of the Deloitte Center for the Edge. Previously, he was chief scientist at the Xerox Corporation and director of its Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC, a position he held for nearly two decades. While head of PARC, John expanded the role of corporate research to include such topics as organizational learning, knowledge management, complex adaptive systems, and nano-MEMS technologies. John's latest book, which he co-authored with Douglas Thomas, is A New Culture of Learning, Cultivating Imagination for a World of Constant Change. John Seeley Brown, welcome to Creativity in Play. Good morning. Great to be here. Glad to have you with us. Well, you make a distinction in some of your writing uh, between imagination and creativity. And when we had um, Scott Noppy Brandon from the Lincoln Center Institute on the show a few months ago, he talked about sort of the continuum from imagination to creativity to innovation. And, and you and Douglas make a slightly different distinction. I'm wondering if you can, first of all, say how you define those words and, and, and why the distinction you make between them. Yeah, I mean, we see that there's been way too much emphasis on creativity and not enough emphasis on imagination. So imagination is the ability to be able to, to envision, to visualize a new possibility. It's being able to play the what-if question. Um, so you have to be able to imagine a new world in order to even worry about how might you build that new world or how might you actually get to um, to solving the problems to get to that world. So creativity kind of is the ability to use tools in interesting, maybe even new ways, maybe even strange ways to make things happen. But if you don't know what you're trying to really achieve besides just solve a predefined problem, then the power of imagination is, is probably the dominant factor here. And it's a factor we don't pay much attention to. So said in a fairly mysterious way, but we hope evocative way, imagination also often has to do with um, making the strange familiar. What you mean by that is consider, for example, a child playing. A child picks up a stick and treats it as a wand. Now the catch is when they start to play, they actually start to transform the world around them. They reimagine the context around them to make this new thing seem very familiar. So they can actually make magical powers happen in the trees that they wave at and so on and so forth. So part of the whole issue to us is how do you take something that is fundamentally strange and then build a hypothetical world, a full-blown context through play that makes this thing now seem very familiar? So if you think about why is Harry Potter so popular, it's basically you see continually in the, in the Harry Potter, people that are, you know, are dedicated to living the Harry Potter life, um, um, they, they actually can kind of construct these imaginary worlds um, for themselves, often informed by the book, in order to make these very strange things very familiar. So we're really arguing that um, in a kind of a twist 
is that the key to imagination is taking the strange into creating a context to make it familiar. Um, I know that's fairly abstract, but the catch is how do you deal with hypotheticals? How do you construct a world? How do you construct the context around us that actually makes sense for what we're trying to do? And you mentioned in the Harry Potter example in your book, I think um, that as an example of how kids can tell you great long stories about the thousands of pages they've read and the things they've participated in online and the movies they've seen about Harry Potter, which has not been imposed on them typically by somebody else, and yet they retain this and can interact with others around it, which you contrast with the memorization we do in school. And I think it was such a great example of, of that great difference. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic example in a way because uh, people keep telling me, oh, people growing up in the digital age, these kids today can't focus at all. I said, pardon me? They what? They can't focus at all? Have you ever watched a kid read a book by Harry, uh, Harry Potter book? You know, often hundreds and hundreds of pages, they can't put it down. And not only do they read it, but in fact, they engage in something that literary criticism would call close reading. They actually can live between the words as they are reading. They're creating meaning, and they're often creating meaning by actually creating back the backstage contexts for what is really going on in the front stage of Harry Potter. And they do this with multimedia, they do this with fan clubs, they do this in all kinds of ways, writing poetry, actually creating music, and so on. So they are they immerse themselves in that world, and they are living it. They are creating the meaning, not just memorizing or not just learning the story itself. Um, and it's so interesting to us because you talk to a kid who uh, is in the game, so to speak, of Harry Potter. They never, ever think about memorizing anything. They absorb it. They absorb it by playing in it, by being immersed in it. That is how real learning happens. So, John, what is the importance of play? Uh, you mentioned play a couple times, and before we got on the show, you were talking about how it sounds kind of counterintuitive to talk about play, which is um, not something adults do a lot of in our culture. So wh why is play important for all ages, not just kids? It's important for kids, right. but why is, why is it important for everybody? Yeah. It's important for everybody. Let me attack this in two ways. Um, as you know, the subtitle of our book um, is Cultivating the Imagination for a World of Constant Change. The key word there besides imagination, of course, uh, is constant change. Now, let's back up a moment. Um, a kid gets born and has to then come into this world, buzzing confusion all over the place, and must make sense out of the world. And by the way, the child makes sense out of the world basically by him or herself, obviously with some cultivation by parents around. Um, so basically, kids start out by making sense of the world by play. They're tinkering with things, they're moving things around, they're constantly repeating things, they're playing whack-a-mole over and over and over again or whatever. Um, they're doing all kinds of repetitive action. But what they're really doing is stabilizing the world. They're, making, they're framing the world in a way that they understand it. Okay? Um, and that's, you know, they do this until they enter school where they start being taught. But before that, they are building a reference frame. They are framing the world that makes sense to them, thereby stabilizing it. Now, 
consider the 21st century. What is happening is every day we pick up the newspaper, so there's some new technologies coming online, the things that are constantly changing everything we're doing, the way we get music, the way we write, the way we communicate, um, the way we actually have radio shows, me talking on Skype, unthinkable two or three years ago. Um, so the world is in constant flux. Well, guess what? You don't go back to school to learn how to make sense of the new world because the new world itself is constantly changing. So what we're arguing in our book is in fact, there's only one way to constantly make sense out of a, of, a, of a changing world is to pull back and be willing to play, be willing to tinker, be willing to mess around, be willing to build those frames that you built when you were a two-year-old. Um, and so the catch is now is how do you start to be willing to not think you know everything, but you're willing to play with things in order to make sense out of them. So, for example, if you pick up, you know, a new intelligent phone like, um, uh, you know, the new Samsung Galaxy or whatever you want to call it. I mean, that's an example. Um, let me tell you, um, you're not going to read a manual to figure that out because the manual is unreadable. Uh, <laughs> it helps you maybe get, maybe get started, but not really much. So you have to be willing to not know everything and to sit down and play with it. And if you have effective strategies to play with it, you absorb how to use that phone without getting angry at the phone. Now, if you're not willing to play, you end up being alienated and angry at things around you. And so what we have is a nation that's basically running from change because they're not willing to play. If they would actually embrace change through play, they would suddenly find everything around us is an adventure rather than something that's an obstacle. And so that's for, therefore we think that the, many of the strategies we used to survive when we got born actually may be the critical strategies to feel at home in today's world of constant, constant change. Well, how does, you mentioned tinkering in play. So how does tinkering come into that? What do you mean by that? What, what tinkering mean is... Um, you know, again, if you start to try to use your your new intelligent phone, um, you're going to have to start experimenting with it. So, I mean, these kinds of little tiny experiments, you got to try this out, try that out. You, you not worry about breaking things um, until you begin to get a feeling for how the overall system is actually working. Now, to me, we're moving into a systems world. Everything is kind of a system. Um, everything is kind of interconnected. And in order to get a feeling for how these interconnections actually work, you actually go back to tinkering. You have to push this, pull that, see what happens. And you learn how to to be at home with experimenting in the system, trying to shape it in some way, modify it in some way, and so on and so forth. Tinkering was the key survival strategy um, up to about 25 years ago. And then we went digital, and all of a sudden we built things that you can't tinker with. Um, you can't tinker with a digital watch. You can't tinker with a computer very easily, the hardware, I mean, so on and so forth. But suddenly, come the beginning of the 21st century, we find tinkering is now back in full force because multimedia all these tools that we have at our disposal, we can mash up our own music, we can mash up our photographs, we have these powerful tools to sit there and try things out. And so as that sense of tinkering, trying things out, trying to make things slightly better, you feel in control all of a sudden. 
And you can actually start to modify the context, not just the content of what you're doing. So, for example, I can tinker with the soundtrack to a video, basically alter the way that that video appears. And suddenly I realize that shaping and tinkering with context along with content suddenly provides me very powerful ways to communicate to other people. And so today's kids are figuring that out. Most of us adults are confused by what is all this remix all about? What is this you know, social media about? What, you know, how in social media am I tinkering with my own context, my own profile, and so on? Blah, blah, blah. There's a lot there. Well, it sounds like tinkering uh, also can give us information as individuals about how we can connect with our communities and groups and organizations. Is that true? Absolutely, and uh, we're constantly kind of experimenting with how to be, you know, more effective, how to build social capital, how to build reputational capital, uh, amplified by today's social media. Uh, kids are figuring this out ahead of us, but you know, why do some of us take seriously writing Amazon reviews? Because it builds our reputation, but more importantly, it helps the collective in general. Could people get better informed by the comments that I hope I make in my reviews, um, and likewise for the people review things. In fact, it's you know interesting to us um, if you look at the Amazon reviews on our book A New, a New Culture of Learning. You know the reviewers found all kinds of things in the book that we hadn't quite as the authors realized. And so what you see around that review system is kind of an interpretive community where folks are reading into things generously, I might add, uh, and finding insights or connecting things that I don't think we honestly had at least consciously in mind. We might have had subconsciously in mind. But it's very interesting that the, the power of what we have written has been amplified by people coming together around the book and writing their own commentary. You've sort of been touching on this a little bit in your what you were just describing about tinkering, the role that um, play and learning um, play in the games and virtual worlds. Can you say a little bit more about that in terms of, of how play and learning are helping us in games and virtual worlds, but probably conversely how games and virtual worlds help us learn differently and perhaps better? Right. I think the, um, uh, the main strategy game that I study, Doug and I study a great deal together, is the World of Warcraft, which is like 12 million players. Um, and it's not so much the playing of the game that we find so interesting, it's interesting uh, you know, at some level, but it's the actual the learning and knowledge economy around the edge of the game. It's like the social life of the edge of the game is maybe more interesting than the center of the game. Because basically, um, in this very, very complex, rapidly evolving game. Um, every night, there are somewhere between 10 to 15,000 new ideas being posted on how to play this game better, how to achieve this new quest, and so on. Um, now, that means that if you want to be a high performer in this game, you actually build guilds. You have to have a guild anyway, so you can't play this game by yourself. But suddenly you start to organize your guild as a learning community. 
and you're self-organized in terms of this group goes out, this subgroup goes out and looks at these particular websites, these look at the machinima of videos, um, and you start to have you have different classes in the game, um, you know, like the priest, healers, and so on. They go out, you know, each each group, and they scour the world in order to find things new. They bring those ideas in, they vet those ideas, and then they they pass them up to the uh, what's called the high-end rating team in, in, in that particular guild. So that entire guild has become a knowledge refinery. It is an amazing learning community. Um, and it's, it's very interesting to see the social dynamics of how these, these guilds actually work. And I think you're going to see that that may become much more of a prototype. How do we want to drive learning across the arc of life learning um, in a world of constant change. Because let me tell you, in the world of Warcraft, every night that game is changing because new people are discovering things. You have to be out there, be willing to absorb these new things. So how do you absorb? You don't memorize, you absorb. You immerse. And these are the issues I think we have to learn more about because I think that if, if you take somebody my age or your age um, or the listener's age in the, in the program, and you say, oh, by the way, your skills last two or three years. Now go back to community college and learn them again. And you're on the assembly line. Oh, you got to learn how to use this new type of electronic welding system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can't help but be angry at that. That's not a fun experience to be told you have to go back to school. But rather, how do you start to look at the incredible resources around you, both social resources, knowledge resources um, on the web, on these things we call collectives, um, and how do you start to, to become part of those collectives so you are learning from them at the same time that those collectives are learning from your questions? And so I think we're moving into a complete new paradigm for how to really think creatively about lifelong learning, or what we call the arc of life learning, again, resting on the platform of being willing to play. John, how can you... Oh, go ahead, Steve. Just going to follow up on that. If you see examples of those learning communities in the offline world that you can talk about, whether in the corporate learning work, in the corporate setting around workplace learning or, or in the K-12 settings? Are there examples you can point to? Sure. I mean, in fact, um, yeah, I, I got interested in this because I, I had a chance to start studying and doing a little bit of reverse mentorship, but also observing very closely um, a, a colleague of mine who uh, became a uh, very young guy, 22, 23 years old, uh, became a CIO and just shot up through the ranks of one major company after another um, by being able to move into a company and use all the strategies he learned as being the guild master um, in World of Warcraft to be able to build teams, to be able to find new ways to do things and to just take a completely different attitude to how to work. Um, and you know, he is now actually the CIO of Starbucks, but on the way up, um, you know, passed through Yahoo, considered Google. Um, you know, I mean, it's just in a 10-year period, it's rocketed. 
Um, and he will claim that almost everything he learned in playing World of Warcraft are the strategies that are making him incredibly successful. Um, one very tiny little example, um, he got um, asked to take on this huge assignment, in, actually in Yahoo at the time, um, pretty major infrastructure company. <laughs> um, and he called me up and said, you know, should I take on this job? And I said, well, I listened to the job. I said, sure, but um, uh, your whole bonus depends on it. He said, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, did you guarantee um, a number of FTEs, full-time equivalent resources, to be able to take on this assignment? And he was shocked. And he said, no, I never asked about that. And I said, Stephen, you just put your whole bonus online without guaranteed being getting the resources? And he looked at me and he said, no, no, it's like a quest in World of Warcraft. It's my job to find the resources. It's my job to get people to want to come work with me. I have no question I'll be able to do that. And, of course, he succeeded. Uh, but it's a completely different attitude, this kind of ability to pull people, resources into you, motivate them, uh, excite them, make it worth their ability to increase their own talent by working in this framework. Um, and so, you know, let me just end with saying in the story is that, you know, the mantra I uncover in the gaming world, the hardcore gaming world, is very simple. If I ain't learning, it ain't fun. The first time I stop learning, I'm out of that game. It's over. Uh, it was interesting to see Stephen carry that strategy in the workplace plus his ability to do dispute adjudication, which you do all the time in these skills, all these skills that you run, that he practiced there, uh, and how to think about quest, became the fabric from which he could create his own ability to work um, in these very major, intense corporate settings. Well, you're, John, you're making me uh, have some added respect for the gaming world, but I wonder if you have any other stories about challenges in the learning environment or in our, our the learning in our various uh, cultural milieus and how um, our cultivating our imagination can enhance our growth and change. Sure. I mean, you know, the key to cultivating imagination is how do you... Um, how do you think about what we're going to call it a new culture of learning in terms of the ability to have these bounded environments where you're free to explore? That is the furthest thing from a classroom. But, you know, the, the pun we actually had, and we called it a new culture of learning, it was a new culture of a Petri dish. How a Petri dish has bounds but has powerful nutrients, and you're not quite sure what's going to come out the other end. You constantly are in the game of trying things out. Um, and if you have enough freedom in there, these kids will figure out what really turns them on. And now we have, unlike the past, we have access to infinitely powerful resources that we can learn collectively together by finding others that have the same passion and interest that I have. Um, and so you now have kind of a whole new learning milieu, almost a learning fabric at work here um, that you know, has this, this sense of adventure, experimentation with power tools. You know, I, I feel sorry for John Dewey, a person I, of course, admire a great deal, because he was maybe 70 years too soon, uh, because basically many of his ideas in today's world could be executed where authentic in learning environments would be second nature, play could be amplified, 
You can have collectives of play all over the place. Um, and you can have these kids doing amazing, amazing things um, in terms of a moderate amount of self-direction. But let me not lead, leave with the belief that mentors are still absolutely critical. And while we find this kind of new theory our old old theory revisited, if you wish, uh, interesting, is that why we see these things as actually practical in the school system is because suddenly you can let teachers be what they love. Teachers can become mentors. They can become coaches. They don't have to pretend to be the authority figures because if you actually engage in this kind of experimentation and imagination, kids are going to be asking you questions all the time you can't answer. Now, in the old world, 20th century world, that made you feel stupid and you thought you would lose authority. But in today's world, you can sit down with a kid and become more like a reference librarian and say, let's figure this out together. Here we have an infinite set of resources. You probably know how to navigate some of those resources better than I do. I probably can judge the quality of those resources better than you can. And so we can start to come together and in a curious way. It's almost like both mentoring and reverse mentoring happening simultaneously. How do you cultivate that kind of questioning? Asking well, the right first question. of all, yeah, I, I think you know better than I do that we get questioning beaten out of us. Basically, five-year-olds have an, a really almost an irksome quality of keep asking why, why, why. I remember <laughs> when I was seven years old, um, you know, my first science course, um, it was maybe second grade, third grade, uh, a little bit older, um, you know, and I kept asking why for everything the teacher said. And finally he said, we just shut up and go sit down. You know, you, you're allowed to ask why about five times, and after that you've already gone beyond the teacher's understanding. Uh, and so, you know, so that is the property of an authority-based delivery mechanism as opposed to an exploration uh, milieu, so to speak. And now we can work together. So, you know, the curious thing to me, um, uh, I like to think about the what I might call back to the future. Um, maybe we should go back and rethink what the one-room schoolhouse, how it really functioned. You know, we as teachers in the one-room schoolhouse became orchestrators. We orchestrated kids helping each other. We orchestrated older kids helping younger kids, um, and so on and so forth. We figured out what each kid needed to learn and kind of nudge them, but you couldn't actually direct them because you, you, you're too distributed. And so one of the models we have in our mind, Doug and I have in our mind, is how might you now build a global one-room schoolhouse? Because now we have these gigantic collectives of tremendous expertise out there in the net. Um, they become the backdrops of all kinds of people that are interested in a particular slice of something that comprise one slice of the one-room schoolhouse. And so I think that we may need to realize that some of the, the push for testability and scalability of the industrial age, maybe we ought to wind it back before that to really see kind of how do we build environments where kids are asking questions to each other, kids are helping each other, uh, and that kind of inquisitiveness, how do we cultivate that, which is what the one-room schoolhouse teacher did, uh, now backed up with infinite amount of resources in terms of these collectives we talk about in the book. 
John, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. John Seeley Brown is the author of A New Culture of Learning, Cultivating the Imagination for a World of Constant Change. He's also a visiting scholar at the University of Southern California. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you, John, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much.